0: This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake.
1: And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture.
0: Ever feel like there's a million acronyms these days? Well, us too. Today we're going to be tackling one of the specific acronyms with a pretty local example. Today, we're going to be chatting YIMBYism. YIMBY stands for yes in my backyard and exists directly in response
1: to NIMBYism, which means not in my backyard. You've probably heard the expression NIMBY many times, such as when folks say, this is such a great idea, but just maybe not in town. This is such a great initiative to help folks who are homeless, but maybe we should have this a little bit further from our community, or it would be great to expand housing, just not in this particular area of town. Essentially, NIMBYs are folks who say that they are in favor of a particular initiative, but just not in their neighborhood for whichever reason. YIMBYs, on the other hand, are folks who call
0: out this behavior and say yes to these supports in their neighborhood. The first mention of YIMBY was in 1993 by Robert Lake in his piece Planners' Alchemy, Transforming NIMBY to YIMBY, Rethinking NIMBY. This was for the Journal of the American Planning Association. Since then, YIMBY support has skyrocketed, particularly in cities such as San Francisco, London, and Toronto. And this has been through support from young people, low-income people, and those who have been looking for opportunities in these particular cities and the populations have increased. However, they've been totally priced out due to the lack of housing supply, exacerbated demand, inflated prices, and lack of government leadership. You might be thinking, you know what, this might just be a big city thing. While it did start in this way, it has expanded to places even such as PEI.
1: One very local example actually Mm -hmm. surfaced just this week. On Thursday, May 6th, 2021, Sarah McCackern launched a YIMBY T-shirt campaign in support for donations to the Community Outreach Center. In the Google form, she stated the following. Since the Community Outreach Center first opened in January, 2020, some residents and city councillors have stated, this is a valuable service, but not in my backyard, ward or city, otherwise known as we have spoken about this before, NIMBYism. To many Islanders, this is disappointing because by discouraging the presence of the community outreach center being located in our city, this says that people struggling with homelessness, substance use disorders, and mental health issues are worth less and are not welcome in our communities. However, Many more Islanders are proud of the essential work of the Community Outreach Center and say yes in my backyard to their presence in our city to show respect and value to everyone, no matter their status. The YIMBY shirts represent unity among Charlottetown citizens and
0: Islanders everywhere to include everyone in our diverse community. With us today is policy whiz, transport expert, Ottawa Maritimer, Matt Pelletier. As well, we have local community leader for folks who are homeless and t-shirt campaign connoisseur, Sarah McCachron. Well, Matt and Sarah, thank you again
1: for being with us on the show today. Um, Our first question to you both is, and we'll start with you, Matt. How are you?
2: I'm good, I'm really good. Sun's finally coming out, I'm excited. Uh, Sign of good things to come and uh, I live for two for a weekend, and I know that's coming up soon, so uh, I'm excited (laughs) to be on the beach again.
1: Absolutely. And how are you, Sarah?
3: I am doing well. It's been a long, busy weekend, so I'm kind of excited that it's Sunday night, and it's the start of a new week, and my energy is starting to rebuild itself, so I'm feeling good. (laughs)
0: Right on. Well, great to hear from you both. It's always such an opportunity to have you folks uh, on this podcast. You are officially the second Returners with Mr. Nate Hood, so you're in good company. So we'll jump into the first question and Matt, I'll start with you. And it's kind of makes me laugh because the first time I ever heard about both Yimbyism, which is of course what we're going to talk about today, but in contrast, NIMBYism as well was from you. I remember we had been working on a project in the fall, and you had said something, something, something NIMBY. It's like I don't even know what that is. I hear that acronym all the time, but I have no idea. And then of course you explained it, and then explained as well. Yimby as the two go hand in hand, but uh, you know for listeners, it means yes in my backyard, a movement that was first talked about in Canada in Toronto in two thousand six, and the long. and the short of it is the movement exists in direct opposition to nimby not in my backyard phenomenon and and this definitely pertains to housing specifically so we'll work backwards and then we'll move forwards matt we'll start off what is nimbyism and how does it affect policy decisions
2: so both nimbyism and yimbyism are kind of they're they're kind of vague concepts, but in general, NIMBYism is the opposition to the development of uh, land use changes or um, new apartments or new builds. And this opposition can be against anything ranging from transit infrastructure to housing projects, retail, and even as the focus of this discussion is going to be uh, social and community services this opposition they, they uses a lot of tropes uh, and language around protecting the character of the neighborhood or um, the fear of the unknown that will be in my neighborhood um, or the even the rationale around preserving heritage buildings um, that might not seem to have the same historical importance but they're very certain that this is say a historic parking lot or a historic laundromat is is necessary <laughs> to keep, keep um, uh, from more housing going up and another aspect that this takes on is the upholding the value of exclusionary zoning. And that sort of focuses on single family housing that has really dominated the North American housing landscape mm. uh, since the end of the Second World War. And throughout North America, this is, this approach to zoning and the, the upholding of it through NIMBYism has had huge consequences. In the US, yeah. for instance, there's one study out there that says the GDP shrunk by over a third. since the 1960s as a result of um, of the opportunity cost around keeping land underdeveloped with just a single house on it rather than a multi-story building Um, and it's also created this low density housing in a lot of city centers and that's made rents a lot more unaffordable so as you see there's a counter movement now um, Mm -hmm. which is yimbyism and that's emerged with literally the complete opposite message saying yes to more housing, more density, and more of this agglomeration of services. Mm -hmm. Um, And you've seen a lot of this actually pick up, uh, not just in Toronto, but in the Bay Area in California, Mm -hmm. um, especially in like the San Francisco area, because um, that is an area where that has had not just um, an unresponsive city council, but a rabid local opposition to upzoning. And that's the move towards increased density within a community or within a a housing area. Mm -hmm. Um, And this small but powerful group has uh, opposed bike lanes, transit, safe injection sites, you name it. Um, And this group, so these YIMBY groups have emerged, uh, including in the San Francisco area um, to sort of show the ugly face of NIMBYism and why it has to be addressed or why it has to be corrected if we're supposed to promote a sustainable future, both in the economic and environmental sense. Um, And it's gained a lot of popularity also because it's not really beholden to one camp on a political spectrum or even one um, vocation. You have people all across the left and right who kind of uh, emphasize different aspects of what Yimbyism can be. Say a relaxing of zoning rules with more of the market urbanist camps or um, the potential for inclusionary zoning and so and social programs that can come more from sort of the social democratic camp. But in terms of professions, you've got you've got sort of the old guard of developers and housing activists who are both invested in seeing more of this affordability and more mm-hmm. of this accessibility. And then why it's gained extra popularity is you have this newer camp, which I, I think I'm probably a part of. They were just these board policy people who, I guess, got radicalized by Twitter, seeing what the <laughs> heck was going on in cities and what? why it was making housing more unaffordable, especially uh, after the 2008 recession. Yeah, and unfortunately, the pandemic has put more pressure on housing markets, as pe- even in like the east coast, where as people are leaving bigger cities, um, for not just suburbs, but whole different communities all together, because they don't need to be working or living close to where they work. They can work remotely in a lot of these settings. Yeah.
0: yeah. So
2: it's it's raising policy policy questions for uh, provincial provincial governments, municipal governments, and county level officials in the U.S.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Matt, so much for answering all my questions before I got a chance to ask them. (laughs) No, I say this in all seriousness. I think your overview, um, I know, gives a really good history of it. A lot of that I wasn't aware so you continue to educate me on that. But also, I think the diversity in support for the Yimby movement, like you said, it's not beholden to one type of person over another. Um, It's a really diverse group that has kind of a similar idea of what they want their community to be. So that's great. I'll hand things over to Sweta. Yes, absolutely. So our next question is actually to you, Sarah. When we last had you
1: as a guest on Dialogue, which was episode 14, Homelessness in PEI, you spoke lengthily about the work that was done by the Community Outreach Center and the various barriers that homeless folks face in PEI. Since that episode, um, the province has bought the Charlottetown Curling Club building and is considering moving the Outreach Center to this newer, bigger location, still downtown. What impact do you think moving the Outreach Center will have on supports provided to the community?
3: Totally. And it's a wicked question because I think there's so many different aspects to it. I always like to say that the beautiful thing about the Outreach Center is that it's so versatile and truly we have worked in any space we've been given. So the opportunity to potentially be moving to a larger space is really encouraging, Mm. knowing that we've grown so much and now we can continue to look forward and grow even more. And when we look at it at a more kind of logical basis and, and what would be able to change or what would be able to grow if we were to make the move to the curling club, there's just so much potential with such a larger space Right now, the operating capacity of the Outreach Center is only 14 people. Mm-hmm. So when we hear the amount of need that the Outreach Center has or the amount of clients that are going on a daily basis, 14 people being in the center at once doesn't really make up um, a whole lot of room. There's not a whole lot of space for people to be in there. Um, if you have been in the current location of the Outreach Center, it's pretty boxy. We're dealing with essentially like five or six bedrooms, a living room, and a kitchen. being able to spread out the services in a safe Mm -hmm. and encouraging and welcoming um, space is very difficult when we're literally working out of a house Mm -hmm. Um, the safety aspect is is um is a big one i know for a lot of the staff the walls we can't see through them um so it's a little bit difficult to maneuver around that Mm. the rooms are pretty tiny so we're limited to a few people in rooms we don't really have a meeting area we don't have any privacy So the idea of moving to such a larger space is so encouraging, not only knowing we could fit many more people in the center, but also knowing it would open up rooms for um, meeting spaces, like I said, or more opportunities for private spaces for people to have conversations that need to be had. And we could look at implementing like quiet spaces. If you've ever been Mm. in the center, you know that when things are happening, it's very loud because there's nowhere for the noise to go. Mm. Um, And oftentimes that causes a lot of stress. If you're going somewhere sometimes you need it to be quiet you need to feel calm and when there's so much chaos going on it's hard to feel that way so um, that's another encouraging piece is maybe having somewhere quiet to go and then the last part i'll touch on and um, because there are so many and i could go off on a whole probably episode on on why it's great um but when we look in terms of the service providers and the service providers the community groups that come in to offer their services to the clients at the outreach center um Right now we're working with like one tiny boardroom and there's not really a whole lot of movement in there, so the idea of having service providers come in who would potentially have their own space, but again open up so many different doors for services and resources um, in a more safe and welcoming place.
1: <laughs> wow well thank you so much for that comprehensive answer like we knew you'd have a lot to say And if you ever want to come back for a full episode to talk about the relocation of the community outreach center we'd love that as well uh, but since this announcement has been made there has been a small but very vocal minority of people who have been speaking out against the relocation of the outreach center do you think there is any ground to their concerns
3: absolutely i i I hate invalidating people's opinions and when people are feeling maybe nervous or worried or afraid about a change that's going to happen and going to maybe affect them or affect their communities i think there's absolutely grounds to feel that way Hmm. and i'm never someone to invalidate anyone's feelings so if someone's feeling that way we like to explore why they're feeling that way or explore what are the underlying factors that are making them feel worried or scared and perhaps it's because they're intimidated by by this, um, by this population or by this clientele, perhaps they just don't have enough information to understand what the outreach center is, what the services are. Um, so I do think there's there's grounds to feel that way. Again, like I said, I think what's important when we when we talk about that is self-reflecting and exploring why people feel that way, and exploring how we can combat that. I guess those feelings or that that um, that worry or that concern that people have. Um, and I know we'll get to this later on, but I think that that was the point of um, Yumbyism and why we're trying to promote this so much, because it's such a great chance to educate our community members who are having these thoughts or are having these concerns. Um, I think the main point is just going back to education and educating yourself on what the reality is and why a center like the outreach center would be such an asset to a community. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think you bring up a very good point, which is that people are always scared when something's about to change. But sometimes you have to look past that anxiety to see what impact this really will have in the community. Uh, Matt, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add to that.
2: Well, yeah, it's just that it reminded me of um, there was a a piece in The New York Times uh, was just published yesterday that actually a collection of pieces around um, income inequality and housing inequality in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And one of the profile pieces they did was sort of an in-depth piece on, um, a, a woman named Diane who with her late husband moved to the Bay area 30 years before. And I mean, her remarks, she, she definitely was from the NIMBY camp in that, you know, it's, it's overcrowded. It used to be lovely and there was so much space and you had no traffic it was gorgeous. You know, this emphasis on the past that, well, because of more people moving into these cities and more changes happening that it, it's, it's it's somehow antithetical to progress. And it's, it's sort of that kind of culture, which you, you just want to scoff at. But at the same time, you have to recognize, and as one commentator did, that there are thousands of these Diane's that are, mm. in a sense, exacerbating a lot of the inequities, especially like in the housing side of things. But we need to get to the root of their fears and getting an understanding sort of um helping communicate decisions with them I, if we're in a planning capacity or in a policy yeah. capacity um mm-hmm. to make them if not it they probably they'll probably never be a diehard supporter but at least sort of in the passive middle camp where okay i understand the outcome better i'm not going to be out there picketing for um mm-hmm. For, for the for the closure of a, of a derelict c- curling club or something like that so.
1: <laughs> yeah and Sarah did you have any final remarks on this
3: yeah I think just to build off what Matt said and to build off my last point I think when we think about when we kind of look at the uncertainty of things uncertainty is such a big fear factor for so many people so I can totally understand mm-hmm. that anyone who may not understand what the outreach center does or what different pieces of this puzzle do to make up such a diverse community i guess i'll say and uh, that uncertainty lies flat and it causes a lot of fear and anxiety so once you start to understand or educate or explore all of those things
0: some of that stress can be relieved i think a big thing from both of you in that answer is empathy like really trying to understand okay where are people coming from on that note, Matt, we'll go to you uh, with a particular example of concerns around the Community Outreach Centre. There was a CBC article that was released last week and a Charlottetown City Councillor, Mitch Tweel, stated, quote, We've worked hard here the last number of years to revitalize this community. The last thing we want to do is to be taking five steps backwards when we're trying to take five steps forward, end quote. Matt, do you think that the outreach center belonging in a community, as the counselor said, takes five steps backwards?
2: Absolutely not. Um those remarks are very much kind of the, the hallmark of, of NIMBYism because they, they 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 use the same narratives that you can see in even the US cities where where there's an opposition to a new service coming in. Um the fact is that as, as Sarah mentioned earlier, uh the the, the space that the center the outreach center wants to move to would give a lot more breathing room and a lot more flexibility uh for services and not to mention that the walk from 30, 35 weymouth to the old curling club is less than 10 minutes away I, I i'm not sure whether the effect of moving an outreach uh center an inch into Councillor Tweel's ward is actually going to have that much effect on uh revitalization as as he is claiming it would um But it reminds me as well of, um, and I actually spoke about this with Sarah a few weeks back as well, um, when in Ottawa, there was a proposal to move a homeless shelter from its old building, which used to be a school, its old little school in downtown to a new purpose built facility uh, that was just um, just down the street, actually. Um, And it was, it, the way that it was situated would have been not only purpose-built for new, for new services and for uh, client accommodation, but at the same time, almost equidistant to both the downtown original location and to the nearest hospital along Montreal Road, which has a big um, transit corridor too. So it had a lot working in its favor, but despite that, there was opposition from the city councilor who was opposing this center, moving from one part of his ward to another. And also the business association who <laughs> had the audacity to use the line I believe at one point was it's not that it should be in our backyard it should be in no one's backyard.
0: Oh the my city, goodness! Wow, one, that was
2: one of the opposition lines from, oh uh, and no. it was just one of those jaw-dropping moments where uh, <sighs> you you do what you can when you hear those kinds of things. In the end, the the city obviously approved the the, the shelter. Or the, the, and then they ended up moving the case to uh, the provincial body, the appeals body, who then obviously upheld the city's decision. And I believe it's going forward as planned.
0: Well, fabulous! Uh, but the
2: two stories show you how fear mongering can get in the way of good policy mm-hmm. and um, access to essential resources for the clients in need.
1: Mm -hmm. And we keep going back to this point again and again, which is about, you know, fear of the uncertainty, about developing empathy for what other people in the community are going through. But when we're talking about, you know, homelessness, when we're talking about supports, one issue that goes hand in hand with homelessness is oftentimes addiction. Uh, Sarah, in your previous appearance on Dialogue, as well as on the episode after yours, which was on safer consumption sites on PEI with Peers Alliance, We've discussed time and time again about the need for more addiction supports on PEI. You know, recently uh, with the budget, the government had announced that they were working on a safer consumption site on the island. Um, how do you think the current discussions around the relocation of the community outreach center will impact the decision-making with regards to these safer consumption sites?
3: Mm, I really like this question. And I think that right now, this week, the conversations that we've been having are starting to really open the door to more conversations about addiction and about substance use disorders and safe injection sites. Um, historically, that's been such a taboo subject. And I think it still is with so many Islanders. And I think that since now we're having these conversations and we're you know, trying to be public with them and trying to be so opening and encouraging, it opens that door for more people to understand. And we keep going back to the point on uncertainty to explore and understand why we have these prejudices against these certain disorders, why yeah. we why we think of addiction the way that we do, um, and I think the conversation specifically about the outreach center is a really great way to open those up. Mm-hmm. Um, it starts to kind of, I guess, turn switches on in people's brains, maybe mm-hmm. um, start some conversations in um, friend groups or in in your home and things like that. It, it opens the door to those conversations, and I think as we start to talk about it and as it becomes less taboo or less stigmatized, that's going to project and be even more beneficial in the future when we start to have those conversations about the actual implementation of
0: safe injection sites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think one thing you had mentioned, Sarah, too, that really speaks to this was from your CBC interview on Island Morning on Friday, May 7th, and you were talking about, you know, a lot of people don't know these people's stories, you know, whether it would be, you know, Pertaining to addictions or pertaining to homelessness, maybe pertaining to both. Um, And as you said in that article, and right now, like, I think understanding that, you know, these are people, these are people who are part of our community. These are, Mm -hmm. for some people, their constituents, and understanding that empathy and knowing where they're coming from, both as community members and as decision makers, is so important. So, um, point very well taken. Yeah.
3: I'll add just one thing onto that. I've had so many conversations since. This T-shirt thing has 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 picked up some traction, um, but I've had so many conversations with people who are now opening the door to this topic and who have brought it up to me, which never would have happened in the past. And the big thing that I'm hearing from everyone who's been saying these things is that really mental health struggles, substance use disorders, could happen to anyone. It could be you. It could be a loved one. And picturing yourself in that situation you know you'd wanna be treated with respect and dignity and feel welcomed and encouraged in any location. So consider yourself so lucky and privileged not to be, but look at it from that perspective and understand that when we have these conversations about right now the outreach center, not not wanting to be moved into someone else's ward, how that comes across and how humans can interpret that because it doesn't show a whole lot of respect or empathy. And I think if we were in those positions ourselves, that's exactly how we'd wanna be treated.
1: Yeah, it always comes back to empathy, and it always comes back to, you know, how we want to be treated. Uh, Speaking about the t-shirt campaign, now that you've brought it up, so on May 6, which was this past Thursday, you launched a YIMBY t-shirt campaign on social media in response to the YIMBY concerns with the Community Outreach Center. Um, The t-shirt campaign is being run to raise support and donations for the Community Outreach Center. What was the catalyst for you starting this campaign?
3: (laughs) That's a great question. I'm gonna say (laughs) impulsivity. (laughs) Um, When I have an idea, I I tend to just take it and run with it. Um, On like Tuesday or Wednesday, I had tweeted and I just wanted a shirt that said Yimby and I couldn't find any online and I was getting really frustrated. So I tweeted and I said, maybe someone who knows anything about making t-shirts can make me one of these because I want to wear <laughs> it to work. I want to wear it out. Um, and then that tweet blew up. And from that, I got so much good feedback saying, you know what, I have a t-shirt guy, I can help you make these t-shirts. <laughs> I know I a guy. That one. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I was sitting and I was in a training course and my head was just wandering. And I texted Emma and I said, Emma, I need your help. I have a project, but I don't know anything about making t-shirts. <laughs> And from there, I think it took an hour and a half and we had a t-shirt designed and a place to order them from and a Google form to order them. It was so, I guess, impulsive, but Mm -hmm. paid off big time. (laughs)
1: Last minute decisions are always the best ones. It's always (laughs) the things we don't plan that pan out for the best. So it's been Mm -hmm. super cool to see this campaign online. Uh, What has the response been like with these last couple of days?
3: oh my gosh it's been wonderful i i've been blown away by the amount of people who have been in support of this um i'm typically like a pretty anxious person when it comes to like being public facing so um getting so much or so many encouraging messages and feedback and orders the order form has been just blowing up um and knowing that there's a community backing me up who has the same values just knowing that there's a community behind me that that share similar values and have similar interests and um, that want to promote this idea of Yumbyism.
1: Perfect. And uh, Matt, as an early avid supporter of Yimbyism, what has it been like for you to see this T-shirt campaign take off?
2: Well, first off, I want to say I was honored that I got to see the rough draft before it was <laughs> even sent Emma sends a link to keep on the DL, something big is happening. And then <laughs> I got to see this by the end of the day, it was online and I was so happy to be on the first day purchasing one myself. Um, yeah, I was so glad to see it take off. I remember joking with Emma in the past about the Yimby movement, like when's Charlottetown getting a Yimby movement? I wanna see this, uh, uh, it's, it's 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 long past, uh, it's long overdue that it, that the, something like that would show up in, in town. So um, yeah, I'm glad that you, Sarah, I'm glad that you started and you got the ball rolling on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And Sarah, what do you hope the outcome of the t-shirt campaign will be over these next few weeks?
3: I, like I said, we'll touch back on it. I hope that it starts conversations. I hope that someone is wearing their Yumbi shirt out in public and someone else who may not understand what it means, asks someone what the heck EMB means and it starts those conversations and it starts opening people's eyes to to the idea of EMBism and to the idea of the outreach center and whatever the conversation may lead to. Um, That's the goal and that was the goal from the beginning. We talk about education and exploring these new ideas and these taboo subjects and I think that that's the main message behind the shirts Mm -hmm. and and that's my personal goal.
0: (laughs) Cute.
1: Perfect but our last question related to these t-shirts is Where can we order one?
3: (laughs) There are plenty of links floating around. We've got a submission form. It has been posted to my Twitter and Emma's Twitter and Sweata's Twitter and probably Matt's too. Um, It's circulating Facebook. Um, It's kind of just floating around. You can find it in my Instagram bio. Um, Yeah, social media is is the big presser on this one, I guess.
0: Awesome. And a big shout out to All Star Cresting, who I know, Sarah, you had reached out to from the get go uh, with this idea. And I know they were super receptive and willing to really take a chance on, as you said, this kind of impulsive idea and um, as soon as we sent them mock-ups, I think they had a a version of it back within like an hour or something like that. So a big thank you to All Star Cresting, their great local business, and really thankful to them for working on this. And Matt, you, I think, gave away my keeping it on the DL. I know you didn't, you know, say anything early, but I'm I'm blushing, but that's okay. <laughs> I just, I think I had to. I, I sent it to sweata as they longtime business associate to get her eyes on it I can't do anything without her and then of course to you Matt as well because you're the one who had originally educated me on this so it felt fitting
2: and in fairness in in, in in just to confess I did share it with Molly my girlfriend who's my long time <laughs> romantic associate uh, what? So- <laughs> I, she was sitting across from me when I saw it and I said, oh, my God, I need to show this to someone. But <laughs> I, I didn't share it elsewhere. She was just, you know, handing the phone more than sharing it online.
0: That's totally fair. We'll we'll allow it. We'll allow yeah. it. Matt, we're going to go back to you and, and we're going to shift gears a little bit um, back to an item you had mentioned earlier in the episode inclusionary zoning. So um, many folks on PEI are familiar with the 2018 Charlottetown Youth Matters report on uh, housing. And one of the key recommendations from this report was inclusionary zoning. Um, And this definitely pertains to our conversation today on YIMBYism. So first question pertaining to this, Matt, is for our listeners, how would you define inclusionary zoning?
2: Well, you know, in in its essence, inclusionary zoning is the incorporation of uh, affordable or low income units, or at least dedicated units for these communities, as part of broader construction builds. Um, And this is sort of in contrast to your market units or market rate units, which are regardless of income or regardless of uh, any sort of means testing, that's sort of whatever the, the free market decides is the price for your rental. And that's more almost certainly what most rentals around North America would would be using. The idea of inclusionary zoning is that essentially both of those are included in um in new apartments so that X percent of units within this new building have to meet some sort of affordability affordability threshold. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of an interesting concept and it's, it's growing in popularity, especially as we consider, um, just the diversity of communities, um, within a given neighborhood, or even a, a given apartment building. So it, it's really neat to see that take off.
0: And what are some of the advantages, you know, from the affordability aspect and as well, reducing homelessness, as we've talked about today of inclusionary zoning?
2: There's two that come to mind. Uh, the, the first one is just ensuring greater access for marginalized communities, low-income renters, including uh, op- including sort of a housing-first strategy options for homeless people. Um, and then on top of that, depending on how it's laid out within a given apartment, you can allocate, say, one of these units per storey or something like that, where it can allow for greater kind of I'll call it fraternization and integration in a way that actually reduces economic segregation that has divided a lot of traditional zoning patterns. Um, and now in practice, there have it's been mixed in its implementation um, and in, in the sense that there's been, in some cases, ambiguity around the rules for implementation, which has caused either some um, developers to either withdraw their projects or not be able to meet the thresholds when they're initially implementing them. And in California, what they've seen, because it's, it's everything seems to go back to California only because that's where the NIMBYism got its start, the YIMBYism got its start, but this is sort of the focal point for a lot of that research. Um, they've found uh, the, it was the legislative analyst's office, I believe it was, uh, their findings seem to indicate that general housing construction, regardless of an inclusionary um, consideration, was better at preventing tenant displacement uh, than inclusionary inclusionary zoning ordinances so depending on the goal you're looking at say whether it's keeping people currently in their homes or getting more people into houses depending on what kind of policy goal you're going with inclusionary zoning might work or might not um, but that being said it's a um, it, it is a good tool to to use, especially when you're trying to build a broader um, housing strategy that should absolutely be incorporated.
0: And speaking of kind of a broader housing strategy, um, from your perspective, and I know as kind of a policy whiz, what are some other policy alternatives in addition to inclusionary zoning that you see as important in reducing the unaffordability of housing in PEI?
2: I've seen a few. Options from a lot of these sort of um, prominent Yimby type Twitter accounts that are that are either economists or um, housing journalists, um, and they they range from soft touch zoning deregulation to vacancy taxation, sort of the empty bedroom taxes, um, to more aggressive, um, I'll call it almost like hammer fisted legal action against cities that will block uh major projects and speaking of California one last time i promise that'll be the last uh there is uh, a mechanism within their housing act in the state that allows them to sue cities that either block a major project or uphold exclusionary zoning if they want to use it and you're starting to see something like that emerge actually in Ontario um, and that's something that PEI should keep an eye on it's a new kind of proposed policy that is Uh, ministerial zoning orders Mm -hmm. Um, and the idea is that it gives cabinet the means to overturn exclusionary zoning policies but the way it's presented right now is so open-ended that it might give cabinet a little too much power especially in dictating land use around green belts and conservation areas Mm -hmm. so the the point is there is a range of options for pei to look at some are more um I'll call it dictatorial than others. It does give PEI some alternatives um, or rather complementary policies that they can use in addition to uh, inclusionary zoning and the relaxation of single family zoning um, ordinances.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool, well, thank you for that. I know one of the policy alternatives that has been discussed very often for the last uh, three to four years here on Prince Edward Island is regulation of short term rentals. Now, there is a big event coming up for listeners, if you aren't aware already. So on May 17th, in the next, I think, 10 days, a little bit less than that, sorry. In the next week or so, the City of Charlottetown will be hosting a public consultation on the regulation of short-term rentals, and that will be at the Confederation Center. Now, recognizing the previous data and research that has been uh, done right here in Charlottetown um, on the impacts of short-term rentals um, and that the high density of STRs, as we call them, has directly contributed to that scarcity of housing, especially affordable housing, as we've been talking about, you know, what are some of the outcomes that you folks are hoping to see out of the consultations on May 17th? And Sarah, we'll start with you.
3: I think one of the big things for me is just, and again, I'm just going to come back to the point on like education and understanding. Um, I think for some people in Charlottetown, there's a blind eye turned to the reality of why it's so important to have these conversations or why it's important to look at the benefit of regulating short-term rentals. Um, when we look at the reality of the housing market right now, the reality of rent prices, the reality of how many people are experiencing homelessness, um, a lot of people don't look at that and a lot of people may not see that from um, certain points of view. So my hope is that from this conversation on the 17th, um, those conversations or those pieces of information, pieces of information are are uptaken and better understood by Maybe people who are in a
0: higher point of privilege. And Matt, what about you?
2: Oh well, I think it's going to be a really interesting discussion on May seventeenth. First off, it's um, it's not going to be a dull night at the Confed Center. Um, but I I was going to say it's pretty shocking to see um just how much of a dent the STRs make. It's it's not insignificant, uh, especially when you're looking at how many units were taken out of the 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 housing market or the rental market rather, and it's also shocking to see the potential that the five or so scenarios have in bringing the vacancy rate back into back up to where it was sort of in the long term.
0: Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. You know,
2: even the most relaxed of the proposals. I don't know if you guys have seen the the slide of like the the different vacancy rates over the long term. Thanks, sweata mm-hmm. for sending that to me as well. Um, but it's interesting that even the least ambitious of them would still Add, I believe it's at least 1% or or so to the vacancy rate, which would put it sort of in line with the national average, and then the other ones are definitely more ambitious. Um, So I think there's going to be, call me an optimist, but I think there's going to be some some good that's going to come out of um, these consultations. Um, The only downside is that it's not I mean, because the whole the whole topic of the conversation is Yimbyism, and it's not necessarily the kind of the core YIMBY policy that it would relax more housing to be built. But I think within the context of Charlottetown, that an PEI is that it makes a lot more sense just because of the significant figure that, or the significant rate change that can happen when one or two or a hundred or so um, Airbnb units or short-term rental units uh, enters or withdraws from the market. Um, mm-hmm. so that it's not insignificant so that in this case I believe it is justified that the city look at short-term rent you know curbing the 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 impact of short-term rentals including limiting it to say primary residences plus the few exceptions that they were discussing in the various scenarios mm-hmm. um, but what I, I, I think I'm most most curious about is um and, and I I also recognize that this part is probably the, not the most sexy part of the debate, but how the compliance will be enforced or or recognized. Um, it's kind of interesting to see that more than half of the current rentals are non-compliant. So while fewer of those listings might be easier to enforce, um, once they've curbed just how many there are um, available for tourists, I I will really want to know how compliance will also be changed like what mechanism they're going to do to actually improve enforcement Mm -hmm. because we might end up in the same situation where there's still fewer units but say 50 to 60% of them are still non compliant so it's interesting to see what will become of that.
1: Absolutely. And that's a lot of good points that you bring up, Matt. I think one thing that I often think about when we talk about putting houses back on the market as opposed to new builds is the affordability piece. Because we know, of course, that new builds typically tend to rent for more than a house that has been around for a few years. So I think that's the part that I'm most interested in personally. But, you know, we'll definitely be there at the consultations on May 17th at 7 p.m. at the Confederation Center And if the Yimbi t-shirts are there, we'll be wearing them at that event as well. Uh, So this kind of concludes the formal part of our interview. Both of you are returners on dialogue, so you know what comes next. It's a very, very formal, very important beer panel uh, where we talk about beers, recipes, food, anything that we'd like to recommend to our viewers. Um, Listeners can't see this, but Sarah looks very excited. So I'll go to her first for her recommendation of the day.
3: Well, I've been thinking about this since Emma asked me to be on the podcast. And the one thing that I have been like deeply obsessed with the past couple of weeks is <laughs> the grape colliding tides that have recently been launched. Um, Emma and Matt are laughing because last night I was sipping on those and Molly, Matt's girlfriend and I had a wonderful conversation about how delicious and refreshing they are. Um, Literally tastes like drinking a purple freezy, but less sweet. There's just something so nice about them. Um, I've been recommending them to literally every person who has approached me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're delicious. I can't get enough of them. Definitely going to be my drink for the summer.
1: Mm -hmm. I I have to be honest. I have been a bit wary of trying out uh, the new colliding Tides because I find that grape flavors tend to be either a hit or a miss most often a miss so i've been very careful there but if it comes highly recommended by you we'll definitely try those out and what's your recommendation matt well
2: i'm always gahan or die when i make these recommendations um <laughs> my always my always my go-to beers usually are the blueberry ale the honeyweed ale um and the 1772 but the one i, I really am gonna talk about is the the newer one i think it's called beacon blonde it's their it's a newer one that they've gotten right in time for the summer right in time for may 2 for a weekend in, in nudge nudge um but it's uh i don't i had one the other day and it was just oh it was just perfect it was it's the perfect end of the day beer you just want to sit back and just have a nice calm light drink socialize or and, and just enjoy it so yeah, I, that that would be my pick for for uh today
1: mm-hmm. Now, uh, our, for our listeners, will you please elaborate what is May twenty fourth weekend? Because we see that Sarah have also had that question.
2: Oh, the Victoria Day weekend, the big long weekend. <laughs> you guys not call it that? I think it's called May two four because it's supposed to be around the twenty fourth of May. But I think it also has the double entendre, like of a two four, uh, like you know, for beer and all that. But it's, so it's 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 got a lot of like there's a lot of layers to it. But the May long weekend we shall call
3: it got it matt thanks for clarifying
1: (laughs) thank you for that clarification and like i like the beacon blonde a lot as well too i find that it reminds me a little bit of the beach chair but it's just different enough that it's not the beach chair so yeah i like that one as well
0: and emma will go to you next thank you so much so i'm actually going to recommend a wine simply because i've had this in closest proximity to this episode being recorded and it's The top thing that i could think of so i'm going to recommend my favorite wine that you could find at the pei liquor stores it is a chateau canet it is a bordeaux wine which i know sweat is also a big fan of And it is a Merlot Cabernet Savion. Um, This wine is about a medium-priced wine. Typically, you could find it for, I think, $16. Um, And sometimes at the liquor store, they'll have like a dollar off, which is great. It's also an organic wine. I'm not sure what that means, but it is on the label, and it does intrigue me. So I have bought it numerous times um, and have been gifted it also a number of different times. And um, I think it's a really good wine. Um, It's definitely, yeah. Good bang for your buck, delicious, easy to sip on, big fan. That's my recommendation. And what will you be recommending, Sweta? I'm going to be recommending a beer
1: that we have had recommended on the show multiple times before, Um, but it's for a different reason this time. And it's the do-gooder, which is an IPA from Upstreet. Um, so folks know I love summer and summer reminds me a lot of seafood. So the other day, um, I discovered that you can actually make really good steamed mussels with, uh, an IPA. Like normally you'd use a pale ale, I find, but it actually works really well. So if you just want to get your mussels, you want to get your do onions, garlic, maybe some paprika, parsley, butter, and olive oil, salt and pepper. And you've got yourself delicious steamed mussels. So the do-gooder is my recommendation
0: tonight. And Matt, you had one last point to add?
2: Only because I remember seeing this picture circulating around. And when Sarah brought up the the whole, uh, the the t-shirt discussion, I had to just pull it and put it into the thread only because I think it's really relevant as a closing remark just around Yimbyism. And it was a neighborhood sign in Montgomery County, which is one of the leading counties for inclusionary zoning. Their line is, in our neighborhood. Density means diversity. More neighbors equal more fun. Apartments are awesome. Characters make up the neighborhood character. Renters are welcome. Triplexes and fourplexes are pretty. This county is for everyone.
1: And those are beautiful words, Matt. Sarah, do you have any words to close off this episode for us?
3: I think I just want to say that the beautiful thing about UMBism is that there's so many pieces to the puzzle. And while we've only talked about a couple of them tonight, um, there's so many different pieces that can be explored. So,
0: Absolutely. Well, folks, I think we did the damn thing. Thank you so much <laughs> for being with us. This has been a delight to have you both back. And I know my cat is currently chewing on a cracker. Sorry, it has been a delight to have you both back, regardless of some of the distractions I've had from my cat. Thank you both so much. I hope you're both staying safe. sweated do you have anything to add? Just to say a big thank you to both of you for taking
1: time out of your Mother's Day Sunday to chat with us about Yimbyism and everything that goes with that. It's very appreciated.
2: Thanks for reminding me to call my mom.
0: All right, folks, have a good evening. Thank Thank you. Bye, folks. Bye. Thank you so much,
1: Matt and Sarah, for your perspectives. It's always such a great opportunity to highlight the work and
0: knowledge of our friends. Our opening and closing music is by the wonderful Beyonce. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm totally joking. I just wanted to catch you folks off guard. It's from the talented Mr. Shane Pendergast, and that is his song, gaspe from his album Place to the Name. Shane has a number of shows coming up,
1: including The Salad at the Benevolent Irish Society on Friday, June 4th from
0: 8pm to 10pm. Then Shane has two shows, live at the Harmony House. The first one is Friday, June 11th, 2021, 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. And then he'll be back at the Harmony House for night two on Saturday, June 12th, again from 7.30 to
1: 9.30. And that's all the time that we have for you today, folks. We hope everyone's just basking in the sun as we usher summer in and you're staying safe.
0: This has been Dialogue.